Welcome to the Vancouver International Film Festival podcast, a podcast dedicated to some of the most exciting live conversations that happen at the festival and our year-round program. I'm your host, Ken Tsui, Director of Creative Engagement and Live Programming here at the festival. And in this episode, we present Cliff Martinez, film composer and regular collaborator of Steven Soderbergh and Nicholas Winding Refn. Cliff Martinez is widely known for his idiosyncratic and iconic score for Drive, Traffic, Spring Breakers, and The Nick. He has also been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Fifth Amp is our music and film summit dedicated to inspiring emerging composers and music supervisors. At this Amp keynote, Martinez charts his dynamic career and talks about his approach to composition and his long-standing creative partnerships. Martinez is joined by critic AA Dowd on the VIP Amp stage to discuss. Thank you. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for talking to me tonight. Thank you for bringing me to uh, <laughs> Vancouver. Nice place you got here. But I wanted to start by just sort of talking about some of your origins uh, as a composer and sort of how you made that transition into that career. Um, I'm curious if you uh, was it always an aspiration to be a composer? And because you started in rock music, you were playing with the Red Hot Chili Peppers with uh, Captain Beefheart. Did you always think one day I'm going to move into scoring movies? Uh, no, um, I guess late in my uh, Chili Pepper career, I kept wondering if I could age gracefully into my fifties and sixties with nothing but a sock on my genitals. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess they've proven me wrong. <laughs> okay. But somehow I just thought I don't really want to be a billionaire. Um, I, um, it came along a little later. I kind of had an interest in in film music, but it probably became more of a conscious decision when, um, in the late '80s, when music and computer technology merged, and there was a bit of a electronic music renaissance. And I always had a lot of good ideas musically, but. Um, I didn't have 10 years to dedicate to um, learning to play the piano or play anything that I couldn't make music on without hitting it with a stick. <laughs> I was a drummer. And um, so I became really fascinated with music technology in the late 80s, and that's probably what drove my interest in film music. I just felt that uh, film offered, Mm, was more eclectic than the radio dial. There was just more, there was symphonic music in films, there was avant-garde music in, in horror films, and uh, world music, jazz, pop, and uh, it just seemed like a broader um, range of musical styles that attracted me, and music technology, of course. I um, started playing around with drum machines and sequencers and computers, and I just felt like um, film, rather than a band, was was um, where I would have the most fun. Sure, uh, there is a rhythmic 
quality to most of your film work um, that I assume comes from a background in, in playing drums? Well, later, yeah. I, my first film was um, um, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was all kind of drones. So, yeah, for several years I was kind of deprived of doing anything rhythmic. But, um, uh, yeah, now I do a lot of rhythmic-based scores. Yeah, this kind of propulsive movement that a lot of your scores have, you know. Um, your first gig, though, was for television, correct? You uh, were you started composing on Pee-wee's Playhouse, is that right? I got to do one episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse, I think, in 1988. <laughs> and um, that kind of sealed the deal. I think I got paid $3,000, which I thought was like a huge amount of money. <laughs> um, I'd also seen two seasons of Pee-wee's Playhouse, and I got, I got to score one episode of season three, and when they sent me the rough cut, I thought it was absolutely the worst episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse <laughs> ever, not realizing that the missing ingredient was the sound and the music. And as I began writing the music for it, I thought, I arrogantly assumed that I had saved the show. <laughs> and, um, I guess that excited me a lot, and actually it wasn't until years later I realized, well, that's just what music does. Music is the finishing touch of the post-production process, and it can really have a big influence on, uh, on telling the story. So, um, and I got to use my drum machines and my sequencers. I had, I had a sampling drum machine, and I would host these parties where my friends would step up to the microphone and make uh, rude body noises, and then I would uh, assign those to like a, a MIDI percussion controller and play it with drumsticks, and kind of had these rude body noise collages, I guess you would call them. And um, I just thought that was great fun. <laughs> How did you get the um, the sex lies gig? Uh, well, the only thing I had at this point on my demo reel was Pee-wee's Playhouse. So I would have, a, have that on a cassette tape in my back pocket at all times. I managed to run into, um, through a mutual friend, I ran into Steven Soderbergh, who said, yeah, this music will be perfect for my next movie. And uh, would you like to score my next movie? And I said, uh, yeah, sure. Years later, years later, Steven said, I hired Cliff because he was the only composer I knew <laughs> in Hollywood. And, uh, it worked out, though. It worked out, yeah, it turned out okay. Um, and then when I saw a rough cut of Sex, Lies, and Videotape and tried to imagine the Pee Wee's Playhouse, like flatulent collages uh, against that, I thought, I called up Steve and I said, I don't think this Pee Wee music is gonna work. And he said, oh yeah, we'll, we'll do something different. So I guess we just hit it off personally, but um, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, my first feature film, and after that, I thought I was a made man in Hollywood, and I waited about a decade for the phone to ring. <laughs> and, um, but it, it turned out okay. Anyhow, for as long as my father was alive, he would always ask me, so tell me what it is again you do for a living? And um, I think he just asked that just to irritate me 
because he never really approved of like music as a legitimate career. I think until you've seen a, uh, a film without any music and then see it with the music, you really don't understand what we composers do. Can you talk at all about your process? I mean, so you get this scene and then what's next for you? Well, yeah, it usually starts with the scene. I've tried to write music to a script before seeing the film and that's, in my entire career, that's, I've learned that that's uh, rather pointless to do that until so you actually have a picture and you can throw some music up against the picture to decide what works and what doesn't. But usually um, the process for me is to watch the film or TV show and then lay on the couch for a couple of weeks and stare at the ceiling and wait for lightning to strike. Um, it's kind of a slow process and I think the hardest part is those first couple pieces of music that define the style, the approach, the harmonic language, a lot of things. But you also rely on the director. The director who is m much more familiar with the project often has a lot of ideas about music. And uh, so I pick their brains too and ask a lot of questions. Do you have the luxury of generally seeing the whole film when you're composing for it? Yeah, usually I get the whole film and you, you kind of want to have the whole film. One of the luxuries of working with like directors that you've worked with before, like Steven Soderbergh or Nicholas Reffin, is that they will, um, they will bring you on a, in on the ground floor. I think when music, film music is really um, firing on all cylinders, it expresses something that, that the dialogue and the, and the images can't express. That's kind of an, a very optimistic uh, description of film music, and it probably doesn't happen more often than it does. The true test of a musical theme is, can it be modified to fit other situations? Do they work? Can they be tweaked to kind of fit other situations? I learned kind of early on that you don't um, write new thing, new thing, new thing. You really, people listen to film music differently than they listen to songs. Songs are something that if you like them, you'll probably hear it repeatedly. And films don't work that way. There are very few films that I've watched more than once. Uh, for some reason, books and films, you just don't revisit them that many times. So the listener really has to, um, I, I think has a higher tolerance for repetition in a film than you do in song. So I try to use the same material over and over throughout the film and that's how the music becomes loved through repetition. I think that's how people like love a piece of film music is you gotta always give them the same thing but different. Do you ever listen to movie scores when just outside of the context of a movie? Yeah, but not a lot of them. Um, I don't have a big collection of like film music because I think separated from the film itself, it's not oftentimes not that interesting and I include my own music in that. But there's a few guys that, whose music holds up as a standalone listening experience. I love Ennio Morricone, Bernard Herrmann, some of the old guys just wrote things that were great, you know, a la carte listening experiences with or without the movie. And there's a, several movies that I've watched for decades, like Fistful of Dollars. I can watch that all the time. And I think it's, it's the music that makes those films hold up um, over the years and through lots of repetitions. 
there's something a little bit timeless about some of your music. It feels, it feels modern, but not placeable. The big uh, valuable lesson I learned from the Nick, and this is like, you know, after being in the business for 30 some years, was that um, it was Soderbergh's idea to, to make this stark electronic score, synth score for the Nick, which when he first told me about it, I thought, well, that's got a lot of potential to be a, a bad idea. Um, and I was skeptical. And then he sent me, I think, three episodes at once, rough cuts of three episodes, where he had cut in music from Spring Breakers and Drive and I think Trent Reznor's social network and things like that. And uh, it didn't take very long for me to kind of acclimate to the idea that, oh, okay, this can be made to work. And what I think I learned from it was that um, if the music fulfills the dramatic needs of, of the story, then you can take a lot of liberties with style and with, with instrumentation. If you play a romantic scene and you do that, it doesn't make any difference if it's scored with a, a flute or a bass drum or a synthesizer or a violin. It, it's, um, your ear will accept the instruments you've chosen and the approach you've chosen if you're doing the right thing, if you're fulfilling the dramatic needs of the film. You can get away with a lot of stuff. So anyhow, that seems to be what people talk about the most about the Nick is that it's so weird. You did that like electronic thing for 1900 New York. And I thought, yeah, but I'd like, that's all Steven's idea, but I'd like to take credit for making it work. Why do you think it works with Game Night? I, I think the most radical career thing that's happened to me recently was I got to score a comedy. And um, I'd been complaining to my agent for years. I was like, I want to do something where people don't get stabbed and blown up or do drugs or get run over and killed. You have seen Game Night, right? <laughs> unless it's funny. That happens in Game Night as well. Yeah, unless it's like really funny. So, um, but nobody wanted to hire me because I'm just, you know, I do stuff like that. And, um, but they're, um, the two directors of Game Night were, were pretty brave. They thought, what an interesting idea to get me to score a comedy. And one of the first things they said to me was, just be yourself. Don't try to be funny, that's our job. And, um, and they used as temporary music while they were editing Game Night, the music from The Nick, which was a um, 1900 hospital drama series for um, Cinemax. And when I saw it, I, was, I thought, I didn't think the Nick, the music to the Nick was all that funny, but you guys have proven me wrong because it's hilarious. <laughs> um, and then when I saw uh, Jason Bateman in Ozark, and I realized I think he's playing the same character in Game Night, they should just call his character Jason. Um, it kind of all fell into place. It's like he didn't, he didn't change much to be a dramatic actor or a comedic actor. I thought, well, maybe the same applies to music. I think that's a bit of an oversimplification because I just couldn't resist trying to put in small things that made the music a little more playful. I felt that you could screw it up by being too serious. That's why you hear like these bubbly things in, in the game night scene. I felt like I had to push the comedy a little bit. So I. I think there was 
to just say, you know, write music just like the Nick, I think that would, that was a little bit too black and white. Um, I do feel like you had to kind of make the music funny without kind of pushing the jokes, but you had to tell the audience that it was okay to laugh at um, Jason Bateman was bleeding because he got shot in the arm. And that was actually pretty funny when it happens. So I think there were things that I did to, to kind of let the audience know that it's okay to laugh at, at this violence and mayhem. I wonder if part of it too is about the tension between um, what the music is, is evoking, this kind of thriller, and the kind of bumbling nature of these characters. Yeah, I actually wrote some funny scenes, but a lot of the stuff was like the action stuff, them getting chased, the intrigue. Um, there are some bad guys in this, and I got to score the bad guys, but with a little bit of a comic touch, I guess. I think we should uh, show something else from Soderbergh. Do you agree? Um, you've worked with him for uh, many, many years. It probably your that's that has to be your most frequent collaborator, right? Yeah, he's the uh, the biggest returning customer. I wish I could roll out of bed and write like a Solaris every day. I don't know what happened, why it's like came out as good as it did, but I don't always evaluate music by like what it sounds like if you listen to it by itself. But um, I kind of rate film music by the impact that it has on the film. And I just gotta say, I thought the music for Solaris transformed the film more than any other film I think I've worked on, and that's why it's my personal favorite. Um, another thing I would say about it is that um, the thing I learned about Solaris was that you really only need a handful of good ideas to do a film score, because a little bit of film music goes a long way. You want to kind of repeat things, and the three big good ideas I had with Solaris was one, baritone steel drums. I had just bought them, they came from Trinidad, I just opened the boxes, set them up in the living room, and I just thought, whatever my next film project is, I'm gonna use those. I'm gonna shoehorn those into the score no matter what, because they're here and I wanna do something with them. And when I told Stephen about it, he was like, is, is that the instrument that's in all those Jimmy Buffett records? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, but, but he knew better than to say that's a, not a good idea. And uh, so the steel drums was idea number one. Idea number two, there's a lot of flashbacks in Solaris. And uh, sometimes these things sound like they're really cool intellectual ideas. Sometimes they're just stupid. And I thought if I make these sounds go backwards, that will connote going back in time. So I had this mallet percussion instrument that are these tubular bells, and I just reversed the recordings and made them go backwards. I thought, oh, okay, I'll use this for the flashbacks. The third idea was um, I wanted to use an orchestra because I wanted that big scale. And the film is about existence and, and outer space. So I wanted the, that big scale of an orchestra, plus I had the money. It was my first studio picture and usually Nobody asked me to do an orchestral score, but Fox said, yeah, if you want to write for orchestra, here's a bunch of money. And um, so I wanted this idea of trying to make, I've always done like this minimal ambient music, and I wanted this, I wanted to achieve that same effect with an orchestra. 
So the ambient orchestra, the backwards bells, the steel drums, those were kind of my three noteworthy ideas and uh, pretty much used them throughout the film. I actually do feel like that your score has sort of endured a little bit. Um, on the way here today, actually, I was on the airplane and I was, uh, I was going through your Spotify. I was just listening to some of your music to get me in the right mindset for tonight. And I noticed that the Solaris score is like, it's like right up there towards the top. People, I mean, people clearly have connected to the score, possibly more than the movie. Yeah, I've, it's, um, I think the Solaris and Drive, I've gotten the most um, licenses for it. It's, uh, I think that piece is, was used in a black and white LeBron James Nike shoe commercial. It was used in a Volkswagen Rabbit commercial. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of gets around and people find surprising places to wedge it into. Um, so yeah, I guess it's part of my greatest hits. I think um, one of the reasons that it works um, is that, I mean, so much of your music has this anxious quality to it, you know, that you're constantly sort of putting the audience on edge, but there's like a simultaneous, there's something simultaneously soothing about this piece of music too. It has that same quality, uh, but at the same time, there's something a little warmer about it, if that makes sense. Uh, This came out much warmer than I expected. I had worked almost electronically and I had done like an electric mock-up of the orchestra, and the biggest shock I've ever had in hearing my music, you know, mixed and hearing the final product was um, what the orchestra did to it. Because Stephen doesn't like like really emotionally demonstrative music. He wants it to be kind of cool and aloof. So the music was kind of designed to be um, a little cold and austere. But when the orchestra got a hold of it, there was this whole nother human warmth to it that I didn't expect, but, but I liked it. And it, uh, it was a radical transformation. I remember the day that I heard the orchestra play it. I just like, I was just like all smiles. I, was, I couldn't believe it. Do you think that's part of the key uh, to the relationship that you have with him uh, as a filmmaker is that he's, he is sometimes looking to distance the audience a little bit and uh, you use uh, electronic music um, pr- predominantly? Yeah, I think I, I kind of get Stephen. Um, that's what happens when you're in a monogamous relationship for 30 years, I guess. There's some, there's some perks. That's one of them. I kind of know what he likes. And he's, at first, he was the only person I work with, so I just thought this was what everybody in Hollywood wants. But then after I started uh, being more promiscuous, I guess, and work with other directors, I realized that Stephen's pretty idios- idiosyncratic in what he wants from the music department. And I think I get it after working with him for so many years. I kind of understand his likes and dislikes. Yeah, how, is, um, how has that relationship changed over the years? Are, are, do, do you work more closely with him now than you did at the start? No, it's kind of the opposite in that um, when we first started working together, he was very hands-on. He'd come over to the house. We'd work on stuff. Sometimes he'd sit on the piano bench with me and we'd play together. And, and he was, he's a, not a musician, but his musical instincts are, are pretty, pretty great. But over the years, we talk less and less. In fact, for the Nick, I think I got all of like three text messages and they would be like, great. 
And that would be, and then, or the one negative one I got from the Nick was, I thought I heard strings. Search and destroy. So his, his, uh, his directorial style with the music department has become uh, even more minimal, minimalistic than, than ever as, as time progresses. Um, and Spring Breakers? Skrillex co-wrote the score. And when I met with him, Harmony, the director, Harmony Corinna, had put um, the original version of the song in the opening of the film and Skrillex was unhappy because he thought that was like a five-year-old piece. It wasn't, didn't represent what he was doing currently. And I didn't know anything about Skrillex and I heard that piece and I saw it with, you know, where they'd placed it. And I just thought that is like totally movie music. I can have a lot of fun with that. And I think there's like three or four kind of ambient versions of that song that, that I arranged and for the most part, that was the nature of our collaboration. Um, you know, a lot of times music supervisors will say, let's get Marilyn Manson and Thomas Newman and put them in a bag, shake them up, and we'll get this hybrid. And it doesn't work out. But the Skrillex thing, I thought worked pretty good. If there was anything that was beat driven, he did the music. If there was anything that was more psychological and ambient, I would do it. But I was trying to sound like him and uh, a little bit. And I think maybe he was trying to sound like me, I don't know. But um, the result was like, it kind of sounds like me and Skrillex, and I'm kind of proud of that, how it, that it kind of came out like that. Because on paper, those ideas probably don't work out more often than they do. It's like you and Skrillex made a baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, we were talking a little bit about this backstage and just uh, that so much of it is about perspective, you know? Um, I think what uh, one of the things I really like about this movie is that it, it takes place, uh, it sort of unfolds not just from these girls' perspective, but from their emotional perspective, too. So all of this, they're looking at, you know, this crime spree they're going on, they're looking at all this debauchery happening on spring break, and they're thinking... Um, they're, they're seeing it all in these very romantic terms, and I feel like your music is a big part of selling that idea. I think one of the first things I do when I sit down to write music for a scene is to decide whose point of view are you telling, are you playing the music to? There's the audience's point of view, there's the character's point of view, and then there's a third one that I like to use, which I call the um, omniscient, um, non-judgmental, godlike point of view, which is kind of neutral in tone. But um, one thing that I like to have fun with is this scene could have been a, an action sequence. I could have played it from the audience point of view, which is, oh, people are getting shot. That's like, that's kind of violent and, and uh, a bit of an action sequence. But throughout the film, um, the girls do some pretty horrible things, but they're having a great time doing it. So um, I wanted to play it from their point of view, which is like, this is, I, I call this uh, Eno elegiac. It's like, yeah, they're, 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 in, they're in hog heaven shooting people. That's their idea of a good time. So play it from that point of view. And that's a pretty extreme example of it. And the 
slow motion kind of helps sell the gag. But throughout the film, there's some other stuff where they're doing a lot of drugs or they're doing something violent. And the music is very childlike and um, positive. So that's, and I knew Harmony would like that because he really likes to be perverse. And uh, he totally like loved that, that this stuff was innocent and childlike throughout, even though all this horrible stuff was happening. The hardest thing is usually working with a director that doesn't have a strong sense of direction. Uh, that's always difficult for me. So sometimes first-time young directors are, I guess, kind of difficult because they're not really sure about the music. And it's my job to sort of bridge that communication gap. Years ago, I heard Mark Isham say that um, when he first started in the business, he thought that the, the job of composer was uh, 90% musical talent and 10% communication skills. And over the years, that ratio has been inverted. So I think that's probably the hard part is communicating about music, which can be a pretty slippery and abstract thing, unlike picture editing, where you can say cut here and cut there. Music can be a hard thing to talk about. And as composers, that's kind of our job to be the communicator. But I think there's, you know, there's a million ways to score a film. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And a lot of times I won't uh, agree with the director. Case in point, I wrote a score for a film that used a small orchestra and it was loaded with flute. And two days before I went into the recording studio to record the orchestra, the director's right arm picture editor said to me, um, Paul doesn't really like flutes. It reminds him of the Presbyterians. <laughs> and I didn't know what, I said, I, is this a joke? And he said, no, I mean, on the last film, he went out into the, you know, into the recording room and fired the flute player on the spot. So I was like, oh man, okay, uh, so you're serious. Um, so I called my orchestrator and he said, oh, here's an idea. I was gonna hire like A players. We had two flutes in the score. I was gonna hire like the best, but now I'm gonna hire like the B flute players because they double on clarinet. So why don't we try to go for it? Because obviously the director didn't hear flutes. You know, he just doesn't like the look of a, I don't know what it is, but I never figured it out. But um, so we did that. And uh, I remember the day of the recording, the flute player happened to be the first guy in. One of the flute players was like the first guy in the room and he's warming up and I went running out there and go, no, no. Director doesn't like flutes. It reminds him of the Presbyterians. Don't play. Don't warm up. And we positioned them in the back of the room so the, the director wouldn't be able to see him very well. So the two flute players are in the back of the room, and uh, there's like a dozen people in the control room. There's like producers, and there's the director, and the picture editor, and the Pro Tools guy, the orchestrator. We're all there, and we roll tape, baton drops. And I just hear behind me, I hear the director stand up and he walks over to the window into the talent room. And for the first time, I don't know what it is about the flutes, but I felt evil. I felt like whatever the flutes are doing to him, it's some kind of bad memory. And I could just hear his brains moving. And I was thinking, yeah, he doesn't want to say anything because there's like 
12 people. What was he gonna say? It reminds me of the Presbyterians. And so he looked like he was gonna start crying. And then, then he went back and took his seat and we used flutes for the rest of the session. Problem solved. I don't know what that was about. Uh, let's give it up for, for Cliff Martinez. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to this conversation recorded live from the Vancouver International Film Festival. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Creator Talks and Masterclasses are programmed by Fran Bergen. The podcast is created by Ellen Hadley and Clem Lobey on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nation.